Good evening and welcome to Campus Voices, where we take a look at what's going on in the Lexington and UK campus communities. I'm your host, Sarah Simon Patches, and tonight we'll be discussing last night's election. 2020 has been a roller coaster of a year, and the election has been no different. We still don't know the winners of many races, including who won the presidency, but we're going to be checking for updated results throughout the show and updating you if needed. During a long day for many voters in line at the polls, WRFL reporter Sophie Metters spoke to some local Lexington voters. At one of eight polling locations in Lexington, we spoke to some voters on why they chose to vote on election day instead of using mail-in ballots or the three weeks of early voting. Early voting just seems a little sketchy to me. Mm -hmm. I just like being around, like just seeing people caring. I don't know, I'm just kind of unsure about the ballots, you know. Even in person, they're still... A lot of chances for votes to go missing or be tampered with, but I feel like it's the preferred option to keep your vote counted and untampered with. While the voters we spoke to only waited about 30 minutes at Tate's Creek Public Library, the polling location had lines up to two hours at some points throughout the day, with the last vote being counted after 8 p.m. For WRFL, I'm Sophie Metters. Tonight we're joined by University of Kentucky political science professor Dr. Stephen Voss. Dr. Voss specializes in voting behavior and political methodology. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Currently, according to the Associated Press, Biden has 248 electoral votes and Trump has 214. With 270 needed to win, let's take a look at what we can expect over the next day or two. So Dr. Voss, I think the big question on everyone's mind is when are we going to know the results? Uh, do you have any thoughts on when we'll know? So it's looking like it's going to move pretty slowly. Uh, I, I think we're going to see some lawsuits. And until those lawsuits get settled, we may not be 100% sure even, you know, that the, the announcements that have been made are going to hold. Um, not to mention, this thing is possibly going to come down to be such a nail biter uh, that until the Electoral College votes, we can't be sure what the real outcome will be. Um, if Donald Trump takes all the places currently trending red and Joe Biden uh, appears to be locking up uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, we could have an electoral college vote that is 270 to 268. And once those electors get to the electoral college, uh, they may not vote the way that they originally were pledged to vote. They can be what's called faithless electors and vote differently from expected. And wow, will that open up a can of worms. Do you think that is expected? Would you expect the Electoral College votes to be different than how the state voted? On the one hand, um, almost always we've had at least one or two electors who've pulled a surprise like that. Uh, on the other hand, they did it knowing that the contest was kind of settled already and that they weren't going to change anything. Most of these folks who get recruited to be electors are, are serious party insiders, the, you know, the serious party faithful. And you generally would not see them doing something that would undermine the interests of their, their party winning a presidential election. And even if President Trump ends up losing, do you think we will see remains of the kind of culture that he's created um, within Congress and even local legislators? After Donald Trump uh, gets repudiated, uh, if that's what's going to happen, we know the Republicans already were repudiated in a lot of House districts, and that's why the Democrats rule the House. Uh, the Republican Party will have to have a fight for its soul. And how the fight for the soul of the Republican Party will play out depends in part on whether they still have a foothold in the Senate. 
or whether they've been swept out of the national government entirely. But you will see people trying to seize the mantle of the next Trump and trying to keep the Republican Party uh, much the way it has been moving. You'll see others who had been trying to rebrand the Republican Party during the Obama years saying, you see, you see, yeah, Trump won you one election, but he's lost control of the government that fast. You should have listened to us. We need younger voters. We need to be attractive to a diverse pool of voters. Uh, let's not be the Trump party anymore. Along the lines of more local elections, we're going to shift gears here and talk about Mitch McConnell's victory over Amy McGrath. And for that, WRFL's Haley Peters has the story. Senator Mitch McConnell was reelected for a seventh term last night. He has served in the Senate since 1984. He beat challenger Amy McGrath by over 400,000 votes. Polls consistently had McConnell winning by 7 to 10 points, so the 20-point win was a much larger margin than expected. Over the course of the campaign, Amy McGrath spent nearly $73 million, but it was not enough to beat the Senate Majority Leader. For WRFL Radio, I'm Haley Peters. So, Dr. Ross, on the vein of the Senate, do you think that Mitch McConnell will ever leave office in Kentucky? You know, this is probably his victory lap. Um, it it will take him pretty deep into his career. Uh, so this may be the end. There are a lot of talented Republican, younger Republican leaders in this state sort of waiting for their turn. Uh, and I think, you know, Mitch McConnell's gonna have to figure out who his heir apparent is and, and make way for that person. What do you think it is that Kentuckians like about him? Why do you think it is that he's been sticking around for so long? So Mitch McConnell has two advantages. One is that as a compromiser, as a negotiator, he, he, you know, angers a lot of people. He angers the Democrats that he foils. He angers the conservative Republicans who wish he wouldn't cut so many deals. Um, but at, at any one time, usually he's only had to fight one of his enemies at a time. In a Republican primary, only the conservatives can go after him. In a general election, only the, the liberals can go after him. He, he sits kind of in the middle of his party and in terms of the electorate. But these days, Mitch McConnell has an additional advantage, which is he's Senate majority leader. A state like Kentucky doesn't normally get to control an, you know, an entire chamber of Congress. Uh, a lot of people who might you know, otherwise preferred Amy McGrath slightly, they also prefer having the Senate majority leader. Is there anything that you think we can expect from McConnell in his upcoming term? Well, that's, to me, the most fascinating thing about American politics right now. For, for one thing, my eyes have not been on the presidency the way everyone else has, had, has been. I, I figured Biden would win. It's closer than I expected, but it looks as though he's likely to win. The U.S. Senate is what's going to determine public policy for at least the next two years. It's really where the action is. Um, if the Republicans control it, we return to where we were at the end of the Obama administration government by a nexus between Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell. That's what we had back then. Uh, if the Democrats take control, even a very narrow control, parties stick together so much in Congress these days that you're basically looking at rule by the Democratic Party. Uh, likely they would sweep away the filibuster rule that forces them to compromise with uh, the minority in the Senate. And the Democrats would have two years of, of doing much of what they wanted, aside from whatever limits the, the federal courts place on them. Now, if McConnell's in charge, you know, I, I would not assume he's going to approach the Senate this time the way he did uh, when Obama was president or certainly the way he did while Trump was president. What we may see is a, a government more by compromise, government more by of bipartisanship. But that really depends on that man. 
And we're going to shift from McConnell, still, still in the Senate, uh, but let's talk about Amy McGrath. So McGrath spent $73 million on her on her campaign, which outspent McConnell's campaign by nearly $30 million. Why was that not enough to get her to win? Uh, McGrath's money is not the only place where big money failed to tip an election. South Carolina, also huge, huge amount of money to elect the Democrat uh, rather than Senator Lindsey Graham. It failed. You know, every two years, I have to say the same thing. Money does not determine elections the way people like to think. And the reason we're fooled into believing money uh, sort of buys elections is because usually the people who give the money are smart and they give it to people likely to win. Uh, and, and to conclude that the money is controlling election results uh, is like concluding that the bets in the horse race determine what horse wins. So where do you think McGrath goes from here? Well, two losses, two very expensive losses. That's the, the conventional wisdom used to be if you lose two big ones, you're done. Um, I, you know, I don't know whether that's true. She's built up a lot of name recognition. Uh, both elections she lost. She lost under conditions that I think pretty much any Democrat would have lost. Um, so, it, you know, it may not have doomed her political career if she wants to continue, especially if she lowers her sights a little bit. Um, but keep in mind, a lot of uh, members of the Democratic Party in the state don't have close ties to her. And they at least want to believe that, say, with Charles Booker, they would have done better. Uh, that that the party should be more unapologetically democratic, should be uh, not try to be co compromise or moderate and just go go left and try to bring Kentucky's voters with them. Uh, so that resentment could hold her back within her own party. And uh, there was another major race in Kentucky last night, and that was the 6th District House of Representatives. And incumbent Andy Barr defeated Democratic challenger Josh Hicks by over 64,000 votes. So in your opinion, what went wrong for Josh Hicks? Oh, I don't know that you can say anything went wrong for Josh Hicks. I'm now going to tell you the exception to what I said a second ago about money not mattering. Money matters when you're a challenger. If you don't have it, you don't have a prayer. Josh Hicks shows you what you can do, even if you have no real electoral experience, no name recognition, if you get money. And for him to get over 40% of the vote coming from nowhere uh, against a, a reasonably popular incumbent just shows you how important it is to have funding for your campaign. And so now in the state legislature, Republicans have a supermajority. They have 28 of 38 seats in the state Senate and 61 of 100 seats in the state House. So with Barr and McConnell winning in Kentucky, what does that outlook have on the state? Does it change very much since they have both returned to office that they previously held? Kentucky's a Republican state because right now the country's in the middle of a culture war. And, a, and it's a culture war that, if anything, uh, got hotter when Donald Trump was elected president. Uh, as long as that's true, this will probably be one of the more conservative, one of the more Republican states. Um, however, we've got some real economic challenges coming. And once American politics goes back like it was during the New Deal to being about the haves and the have nots, uh, being about money and, and economics, you might see this state become less Republican again. Uh, people here aren't that conservative on economic issues, on, on sort of government program issues the way they are on, on cultural ones. What's, what's also really fascinating to me is where Andy Bashir, Governor Bashir, a Democrat, goes from here. Obviously, he, he can't do much to stop a supermajority in the legislature. 
But this sort of situation, a Democratic governor in a mostly Republican state, that's exactly the sort of situation where governors are able to uh, impress people on the national stage, where they become very popular and they're able to turn it into a successful national career. So it's both a, a, a real negative for, for Bashir in terms of dealing with Kentucky Democrats, but a real positive for him in terms of raising his nat national stature if he keeps up the way he's been going so far. Thank you so much for your insight and keep going with the show. Earlier this afternoon, WRFL reporters Sophie Metters and Bradley Charles talked to people in Lexington about the election results on both the national and local levels. Here's Sophie Metters with the story. People woke up this morning to no clear winner of the presidential election. Instead, the races continue with some states still up in the air. However, for some, it isn't something that they expected. I think I knew we wouldn't, but I think there was still a part of me that really wanted to know, so I think that part was surprised, but I knew realistically we wouldn't know until today or even later this week. The race is going down to the wire, but it is not over yet. I think both candidates have a good chance. I think I'm surprised by how well Donald Trump is performing with the way that I feel based on the Electoral College right now that Donald Trump has a stronger chance of winning at the moment. Unlike the presidential race, the race between Senator Mitch McConnell and Democratic candidate Amy McGrath was won by McConnell last night. Many expected McConnell to win the race. Because he just has such an established base since he's been in the Senate for the last 30 something years, um, I'm not surprised at all that he won just because he already has so much support and he's established already and Amy McGrath has no real political experience. So People here in Lexington and across the country are still anxiously awaiting the results of the presidential election. For WRFL, I'm Sophie Metters. So we're going to stay on the same local level, talk about um, the urban county council elections as well. So there were four districts that were contended last night. Three, five, eight, and nine. WRFL reporter Sophie Metters break down, breaks down how those races are going. Local elections like these typically come down to just a few votes, which will definitely be the case in Fayette County. According to County Clerk Don Blevins, there are over 7,000 votes that have yet to be counted in Fayette County, which could ultimately swing one of these races. In District 3, which serves the University of Kentucky area, Hannah LeGrace currently has 182 more votes than opponent Jessica Moeller. In District 5, which serves the area around Chevy Chase, Liz Sheehan has 16 more votes than incumbent Bill Farmer Jr. In District 8, the Jonestown area of Lexington, incumbent Fred Brown has a 495 vote lead over challenger Christian Motley. And finally, in District 9, the area surrounding the Fayette Mall, Whitney Elliott Baxter is leading Willie Fogle by 1,431 votes. The remaining absentee ballots are expected to be counted Thursday. For WRFL Radio, I'm Sophie Metters. So kind of, I guess this is a little bit local and more national. How do you think that young voters are going to play a part in not only this election, but upcoming elections? Clearly, young voters tilt left to a degree that uh, that older voters don't. Um, also, it's a more diverse voting pool. Uh, so when issues of race or ethnicity or especially migration are in play, uh, the average young voter sees it differently from older voters. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we're moving into a generation in which the Democratic Party dominates the Republicans nationwide. Because usually what the elites will do, what the parties will do as the electorate shifts is they kind of shift with it so that they, they stay competitive. So it may not be the Democrats will dominate. It may just be we have a, a different Democratic and Republican Party that are still competitive down the road. But, but still, the change in values among young people will, will cause the shift, whichever one we ultimately get. And 
would you be able to speak on how polls are not always a an accurate reflection of how elections end up turning out? I know in 2016, the polls showed Clinton ahead and she ended up losing. And now it's a very tight race, whereas some polls are reporting that it wasn't going to be. So could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, the polls did not actually do very badly in 2016. Um, everybody basically blamed the polls when it turned out Hillary Clinton, they were so sure she was going to win and she lost. But if, if you look, uh, the, the polling at the end showed that she was going to beat Donald Trump by 3% in the national popular vote. She beat him by 2%. So that's an error of only 1%. And not even that was all error because some of it was caused by people breaking to Donald Trump on the last day. You know, so the polls couldn't have caught them. They weren't in the field anymore. Uh, so the polls did not do that badly. Um, it was just sort of random chance that by a very, very slim margin, Donald Trump popped ahead in a few states and won despite, you know. And, but Nate Silver, the poll aggregator, said he had over a 25 percent chance to win. And, you know, if if the newscaster if the, tells you there's a 28 percent chance of rain and you go outside without an umbrella, you're the one who is foolish, not the not the meteorologist. Um the, the problem was partly with these poll aggregators who were less cautious than Nate Silver, who, you know, noticed Hillary Clinton having a slim lead in, in a whole series of polls and said, well, that's so consistent. Ninety nine percent chance of a Hillary Clinton victory. Not what the, each of those polls said. It was the people who crunched them together and, and drew that faulty conclusion who were who were in error. Do you think if Biden were to win and the Senate remains strongly conservative, do you think that there are any particular policies that are going to cause the, you know, legislative branch and the executive branch to butt heads? Do you think that policy is going to go through quickly? How do you think that's going to play out? The politics of how to deal with the pandemic uh, really does not have as big a gap across the parties as we might think from all the posturing. Um, especially if Donald Trump's not in the in the equation anymore. Uh, I think that relatively narrow gap between the parties gets even narrower. Um, not having the election season going where people don't aren't looking for, you know, campaign points, but now are looking for credit for governing could make a big difference as well. So we've got the pandemic. Uh, often the parties are able to agree on infrastructure investments, on building building up the country for the future. Uh, basically, all, all parties like to spend money and make voters back home happy. And, and they could find common ground on that sort of thing. Uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act's here. It can't go away. Uh, so the only question is what they're going to do with it. And it's not impossible that the Democrats and Republicans could come up with some uh, agreeable fixes of things that are just not working very well with the current system. So, uh, yeah, I think there's some hope for uh, for cooperation. Do you think that the way that voting has had to occur this year with the pandemic um, do you think that anything will carry into the future in terms of absentee ballots um, being more heavily used or anything like that? Yeah, so reformers were able to use the pandemic as leverage to to get put in place a lot of things they've been clamoring for since long before the pandemic. And now that we saw a surge in, in turnout in so many places, they're going to try to act as though these reforms were the cause. They really weren't. And we know they weren't because the surge happened in 2018, too. Right. The, what really changed is people just really want to vote these days and the inconveniences aren't as big a deal to them anymore. And they find a way um, having, you know, having said that. Um, now that places have paid a lot of the startup costs of setting up those reforms, 
you know, set, getting the equipment, ha- getting experience with the ballots and all, the cost to them of, of going ahead and keeping, you know, continuing along that route has now dropped. And as they do the cost benefit analysis on do we want to have this reform, uh, it's a lot less costly, whereas the benefits haven't gone away. So, yeah, we, we might see some of it stick around. In terms of now, you know, I think President Trump has called for a recount in Wisconsin, and my guess would be across the board, there will be calls for recounts. What is that process like? How long could that take? And where does the Supreme Court come in? Yeah, so recounts and and sometimes places will do what's called recanvassing, which is a a little less serious. Um, uh, They rarely overturn races. I mean, it, it, it can it can increase the sense of legitimacy of an outcome that, you know, people went back and double checked. Uh, but rarely do you see it make a difference, except in the narrowest of contests. Um, you know, what role does the Supreme Court play kind of depends on what type of legal arguments are, are brought forward, um, whether they, you know, the Supreme Court even thinks it needs to intervene uh, because there's some larger constitutional principle uh, in, in play. Um, I mean, ultimately, what the Supreme Court does is decide whether states are applying their laws in a way consistent with the U.S. Constitution and whether the U.S. Constitution has something to say uh, about how the states are handling this process. With elections, the states usually get to decide how to do it, and the bias is usually toward the federal courts um, letting them follow their procedures in in, in their own way. And we kind of touched on earlier that Governor Bashir is a Democrat in a conservative state. Did it surprise you at all that Secretary of State Michael Adams and Governor Bashir were able to come up with a cohesive plan for Kentucky voters this year? Not so much. I mean, we had a very combative Republican governor before Bashir, but the tradition in Kentucky politics is usually not very confrontational. And, you know, you just go back through my whole life and bef- even before it, look at the history. When other states were clashing over things, Kentucky was usually fa- finding some kind of polite way to resolve the same the same controversies. I, I don't think it's mostly a state of confrontational politics. Um, Michael Adams is the sort of person we used to have a lot of, people who were trying to make their reputations and their careers, not as showboaters, but by by showing their technical ability at being attorney general, at being secretary of state, at being auditor. Um, and, and again, that's that's a very common path. Used to be more common, uh, although it's not so familiar to college students today, given that they've mostly come of age politically uh, in, in the age of bomb throwers and, and people who promote their careers by being as extreme as possible. Do you think the way you said as, as extreme as possible, it looks like this election is kind of extreme in the way that things are being handled um, in the media and on, you know, on Twitter with the president tweeting. Do you think that this election is severely different than any we've had before that would call for this kind of unrest? Or do you think that it kind of follows a similar pattern as some that we've seen in the past? It's just the worst last step in a long slide. Um, we, we've just seen a downward spiral in civility and a, and a ra- rapid increase in polarization fairly steadily since the 60s. Um, and, and it's just every time you think, OK, this is as bad as it's going to be, then they figure out a new way to expand the polarization. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine it being much worse than this. But, you know, there's still things we haven't had yet. Right. We haven't had mass civil unrest. We haven't had we haven't had a civil war, which a lot of people have been worried about in the last week or two. Um, it can get worse. Um, you know, the voters basically reward bad behavior. 
They didn't always, but this is not just about the politicians. The voters reward bad behavior. Social media, you know, you talk about media, but media is not the same. And, you know, it used to be you had experienced reporters who knew what they were doing, who had standards of objectivity, uh, who wanted to reach a broad audience of both Republican and Democratic readers. Um, these days, you have people who profit from misleading you, people who profit from stirring you up and making you angry and getting you to click things because, you know, it, the headline sounds ridiculous and, and share it. We have what's called fundraging, where the parties now have a way to immediately turn your moral outrage into cash. They, they, they hit you with the, the, the message that enrages you and there's something you can click to give them money to, to you know, make yourself feel better over the anger that they just filled, filled you with. Um, yeah, I, I blame you know, this, this experiment we've done with political communication that is the internet and that is social media for a lot of the poisonous environment we're in now. And just based on your knowledge and what you know about elections and voters and how things go, what would be your best guess as to what the next few days are going to look like in terms of this election and what we're going to see reported? Yeah. So, you know, there are armies of Democratic and Republican lawyers ready to enter the fray, right? The, the, the campaign workers get to go home and the next the next troops are ready to reinforce them. And that's the, the law, the legal teams. We will see, uh, you know, lawsuits flying. We will see confusion and frustration. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately the, the electoral system works pretty well. It, it's, it just has the problem that when things are this close, almost any small error seems like it can make the difference. Uh, but, but, you know, finally, to avoid a constitutional crisis, the, the, the state leaders and maybe the courts will just settle this thing the way they did in the year 2000, where we had a, a mild constitutional crisis heating up because... There was just no really good way to decide what had happened in Florida and therefore no really good way to decide who was supposed to be president uh, in the year 2001. Well, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for your insight. I've really enjoyed talking to you about this. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this evening. This election has undoubtedly been like one we have never seen before in history. We'll await the official election results as more mail-in ballots are counted in key swing states. Be sure to tune in this time next week when we will talk about issues of mental health in the Black community in a time of frigid racial tensions. I'm Sarah Simon-Patches, and you're listening to 88.1 WRFL Lexington.